0: Any of you guys ever been uh, disappointed before? Ever been disappointed? Maybe you you were in Tennessee and you had to come to Alaska. Uh, Maybe you felt like this kid, okay? Something that you thought was going to be sweet and ended up going really, really wrong. And, and, you know, and specifically in our lives, uh, there are times when we've had an authority figure... Uh, Someone who was kind of, you know, a person that we looked up to uh, for leadership, for direction, for for security, for comfort, and they let us down in a major, major way. Um, I remember when I was in seventh grade, uh, we had a youth pastor here at the church who I just worshipped the ground he walked on. Uh, Everything he loved, I started to love. He loved gateway computers. I loved Gateway. This is the 90s, just so you should know that. Uh, He loved Animaniacs. I loved the Animaniac. He loved Jars of Clay and Newsboys. Me too, right? And everything that he was into, I became into. I wanted to be him. And for the first time in my life, I saw someone who both loved Jesus and was cool. Like I had never seen that before. All I knew at that point was my parents, right? No, (laughs) nothing. But, but so I started, and then if it couldn't get any better, he falls in love with this girl, this fairy tale story, this childhood sweetheart of his. They meet, re- reconvene on the internet. This is before email was a really, really popular thing. And, and they, they, they fall in love. They get married. She comes up here to Alaska, and now there's two of them, right? And it's like the Jay-Z and Beyonce in my life that I just, well, 90s, probably like Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. So I'm just like, I am all in on this couple. And and I'm thinking, this is it. I'm in seventh grade. I've got six more years in youth group with these guys. He's going to speak at my graduation. I'm going to be able to watch their their babies be born and be a part of this family, this, this youth pastor power couple. I could not be more excited to follow them as they follow Jesus. Less than a year later, they move to Washington. There's my little seventh grade fingerprints on the window, tear-stained like this little boy, as they drive away. And then, it wasn't too much longer after that, that this, this perfect couple have a messy divorce, and both of them walk away from Jesus. One of them still to this day. And they let me down. These were supposed to be my rock. They weren't. I mean, we've all had that experience, and if not, wait, it'll happen Leaders, human leaders, will fail us. Pastors, parents, teachers, whoever it is, at one point or another. And what we're going to learn today in the life of King Saul is that we, that you and I, are not called to put our ultimate trust, our ultimate hope in human beings, but in our God. If you remember from last week, we've been adding a few. This is our timeline. If you're new with us, we've been walking through the story of the Bible to see how all these little stories fit together to tell the one grand story of God and his people. And we've got these fun little motions that everyone loves uh, to help you remember how it goes. And so we've got another one. I told you we're going to pick up pace here. We're in the kingdom now. So everybody take a crown and put it on your head. I love that you guys do whatever I tell you to do. So here we go. From the beginning, uh, we got God. Creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, last week, judges, and now kingdom. Now we're going to do it again until Bill Granger joins us. We will not. (laughs) Now, what we saw last week was we finally, after long last, God has, has as He promised, delivered the people from, from Egypt. And now He's restored them. He's placed them into the promised land, just like He told Abraham back in Genesis. And what we saw in the book of Judges was those first 350 years of Israel's life in the promised land. And it was a total failure. They are not the shining examples God called them to be. And what we saw was they failed to drive out the nations God had called them them to drive out, which led them to this vicious cycle that is the book of Judges. And we said, what happened is these nations that they didn't drive out, they become like these nations, they worship the gods of these nations, take on the morals of these nations, and as a punishment for it, God allows these nations to attack them, oppress them, make them their slaves, and as they're in slavery, they cry out to God, who every single time, Comes and brings a judge to rescue them out of that oppression, restores them to a period of peace where they follow God until the judge dies and you rinse and repeat and the cycle hums all over again. And for 350 years, these knuckleheads continue to spiral downhill. The story of the judges is what happens when people don't obey and trust God. And now we're going to jump in here to the book of 1 Samuel and what we're going to see today is we transition from judges to kings. Samuel is the last judge of Israel. He's also the high priest. Put that one away. That'll come back in the story here. Remember, he was the one that was dedicated in the temple by Hannah. His mom had not been able to have children. She said, "Lord, if you give me a son, I will dedicate this boy to your service." She did and she does. And Samuel's grown up and he's a judge over the people of Israel. Now, Samuel's actually a good judge. He's one of the rare ones that follows God, trusts God, but unfortunately, his sons don't follow in his footsteps. And in 1 Samuel 8, it says, As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. These were some bad dudes. They did not follow God. You read the story, it's a sordid tale. And so Israel, not impressed with these two, They come to Samuel and they go, the elders, they met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. They said, look, you are old and your sons are not like you. They say, we see your sons coming and this is what we see. Okay, this is not, this is not going to be a good situation. Even wayward Israel recognizes that Cheech and Chong are not qualified leaders for the nation of Israel. They say, we don't want this. And you add on that, at that time, the Philistine army is very oppressive into the people of Israel and their lives. And so they've got this situation on their hands. And so this is what they ask for. They say, give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Say, we don't want to do this judge thing anymore. It's not working. We want a king. We want a king like the other nations. And this bums Samuel out. Look at what it says in verse 6. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Why was Samuel bummed? The problem here is not the request for a king, I don't think. Okay, we see, if you go way back to Genesis, God's talking to Abraham. He prophesied that there would be kings. Chapter 17, I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants, talking to Abraham, will become many nations and kings will be among them. Several times in the Pentateuch, we see him referencing these kings and what kind of kings they should put into place. I don't think it's the fact that they're asking for a king. I think the deeper problem here is their timing and their motivation. Notice what they say in verse 5. Give us a king to judge us like the other nations have. But what God had called them to was to be set apart from those nations. Look at Leviticus chapter 20. You must be holy. Why? Because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from all the other people to be my very own. He says, listen, you're not to be like the other nations. I've set you apart as part of my own special possession. I will be your king. I will be your God. You can look to me for guidance, me for leadership, me for protection. You're my own. But instead, they spit in God's face, and they say, no, 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 no. We want a ruler that we can see, that we can touch, that we can trust with our eyeballs like the other nations have. This is a violation of the first covenant that they had made with God. You shall have no other gods before me. And the problem here is that they are putting their trust in a king instead of the king of kings. That's idolatry. Here's God's response. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned, me. we saw this last week, and followed other gods, and now they're giving you the same treatment. Samuel, this is a slap in the face to him. They go, you're a judge? We don't want judges anymore. Not just you. We just want to undo this whole judge thing altogether. And your stinking sons, they're no better. They say, God, or they say, we want a king. We want a king. But God says, Samuel, ultimately this is not a rejection of you, this is a rejection of me. God was the one that was going to protect them and fulfill his promises to them. And he goes, listen, I don't need any man, any one individual to fulfill my promises. I may use them, but ultimately I will do what I said I would do. Trust me. There's a preacher by the name of Ray Fowler and he gives us a couple of, of lessons that can be learned here from, from what people, the Israelites are doing. The first one is that saying now to God can be just as wrong as saying no to God. Saying now to God can be just as wrong as saying no. God had planned, uh, had a king planned for them. But here's the problem. The timing was wrong. God had anointed David was going to be The king. From the the line of Judah. We'll see why that's important next week. That was God's man and that was God's timing. It wasn't here and it wasn't now. And again, it wasn't Israel's timing, it was the fact that they wanted it now. Is it wrong for me to ask for a wife? I hope not. (laughs) But if I come in stamping my foot, God, I'm lonely. I'm getting past my child rearing years. I want a wife now. And what that does is that tells God that I'm ultimately putting my faith in a spouse and not in my God. Secondly, there's a big difference between asking God for help and telling him how to help. (laughs) Don't we do this all the time? We say, well, I'm not being bossy. It's like the little Miss Bossy. She says, I'm not bossy. I just know what you should be doing, right? We tell God, I'm not telling you, you know, that that I'm, I'm not bossing you around. I'm just telling you, this is how you're going to help me. This is what you're going to do in my life. Israel had a legit problem. Samuel's sons are not fit leaders. The Philistines are pressing in. But what they should have done is gone to God with their problem. Sought his wisdom, his guidance, his direction. But instead, they came to God with their own plan and told him how he should help them. Spoiler alert, that's never a good idea, okay? That's like me coming to God and saying, God, you're going to give me a wife. She's going to be here by next Tuesday, okay? Because I paid for Amazon Prime. (laughs) She will be Brazilian. These Brazilian women are gorgeous she got to have the same theological background as me. Died in the wool, grace, brother, and dunk three times forward, please, thank you. She's got to know how to cook paleo dishes, because that's kind of the way I'm going now. You know, and just kind of tell God, this is the way you're going to provide, and the person you're going to provide, and God's going, who's running the universe here? Instead, what I should do is come to God the way Israel should have come to God, humbly, saying, what's your will for my life? knowing that he knows better than I, and say, God, I'd love a wife, but I'm trusting you to meet my needs, and I'm going to wait for your timing and your way. God had promised Israel, if you trust me and obey me, I'm going to keep you in the land. I will protect you from your enemies. It's a trust issue. See, God, we should say, God, I need you. Not a king, not an army. Now, God may use those things to protect them, But ultimately, however you do it, I'm trusting you. That all my needs are met in you. But that's not what Israel does. They demand a king in their timing, in their way. And you know what God does? And sometimes this is the the biggest punishment he could do, is he gives it to them. He gives them exactly what they ask. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them the way a king will reign over them. He goes, be careful what you ask for. Because this king, as he comes... This king that you're going to ask for, you know what he's going to do? He's going to draft your sons into his army. He's going to take your children and put them at risk, their lives at risk into war. He says he's going to make slaves of your children coming and working at the palace for him. He's going to come. He's going to steal a tenth of your animals, of your land, uh, of your food. You're going to have to give taxes to this king. You don't know what you're asking for here. But they just say, we don't care. We want a king. We want him now. This is one of the things we try to guard here at Peninsula Grace. We don't want to be a church that puts all of our hope in a pastor. And we want to be careful to avoid the king mentality, as good as he may look. (laughs) Listen. One of the reasons we believe in what we call a plurality of leadership here at the church, which means, in other words, we we believe in more than one person being in charge. This is not about having Pastor King sitting on the throne. And so we actually have five elders in the New Testament. the The word for elder and pastor is the same word. We have a distinction here, but it's the same function. The only difference is that I get paid to be able to spend my time here working at the church, preparing sermons and getting together with folks. But the reality is, and it's easy for us to want to be like the other organizations around us, and just have that one guy, that CEO who does all the work and takes all of the blame when things go downhill, right? And as brilliant as I am, we follow his leading, not mine or the elders. We already have a boss. We already have a king. We already have a head, and his name is Jesus. And we're not following me or any other leader And unlike the organizations around us in this area, we are following King Jesus and what his will is and what his direction is, not any one human. And so in verse 21, Samuel repeats to the Lord what the people had said. They said, we want a king. And the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. God says, okay, give the people what they want. And God will at times, Romans 1, he'll give us over to our own desires, but be careful what you ask for because we're going to see is that he leads them down a path that they never should have gone. And we're going to see here two stories from Saul this morning. The first one, two acts, two acts of disobedience, okay? Saul, their the, the request is granted, and he gives them Saul. There was a wealthy, influential man from Kish, uh, named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. Now, I think what God is showing them here is outwardly you have this perfect candidate. He's the most handsome man in the entire land of Israel. He's literally head and shoulders taller than everybody. He's wealthy. He comes from good stock. Okay, it's kind of like why well, you guys chose me. You just said, we're just going with outward appearance. Who's the handsomest guy on the peninsula? BAM, Justin, you're in. <laughs> my wealth, my good Italian blood pumping through my veins, and you're just like, we got to do this, Um, and and what what we're going to see here, though, is that in these two stories in Saul's life, while he outwardly looked perfect, inwardly, he had deep, deep character flaws. Now, Saul gets off to a good start couple of battles are won, he's following God, things are good, but how quickly he exposes who he really is. He's a man of arrogance, dishonesty, and a lack of integrity. He's a complicated man, like anybody. We don't paint him black and white, but what we're going to see here today, and what God is going to teach us through Israel through this, is what happens when we demand things in our way and our timing. Act one. Samuel 13. Here's the context. The Philistines are the main enemy of Israel at this time. They're kind of the joker to Israel's Batman, okay? They're a thorn in their side. They don't leave them alone. Remember, this is one of the nations they were supposed to drive out, but in their disobedience, they didn't, and this is what happens. This is the result of disobedience. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, he's attacked one of the Philistine outposts ticked the Philistines off, they rally the troops, get this massive army, and now the Israelites are cornered, and things are quickly going downhill for Saul. The men start freaking out, and again, Monty Python style, run away! They all flee, they're hiding in caves, they're diving into the Jordan River, they're doing whatever they can do to escape the Philistines. And so Saul, as he sees his fresh new kingdom slipping through his fingers, look at what happens, verse 8 of chapter 13. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. Now, God told them, before you ever go to battle, I want you to make a sacrifice to me, some burnt offerings, some peace offerings, to seek my wisdom and my guidance. Remember, God has, has saved them from in battles in some wacky ways. He says, come to me and I'll tell you what to do. But one of the catches is the only person that was allowed to make these kind of sacrifices was the high priest. Who's the high priest at this time? Samuel. They're waiting. They're waiting. The enemy's pressing in. The enemy's pressing in. They're getting impatient. God, where are you? And look what Saul does. Verse 9, so he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. As the walls close in, Saul takes matters into his own hands And in his impatience, he disobeys God. So Samuel comes, just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering. Saul went out to meet and welcome him. But Samuel said, what is this you have done? To which Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are at Michmash, ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul's, his response is blame shifting and excuse making. You notice what he says, my men deserted me. You didn't come. What other choice did I have? He says, I was compelled. I was backed into a corner. What are you going to do? And hey, after all, I was offering sacrifices, asking for God's help. Why could that be bad? And aren't we just awesome at justifying disobedience and foolishness? You don't know the week I had. I had to plow through 14 bags of potato chips and six gallons of ice cream. I had to. I had to grab the bottle. Man, God, my spouse wouldn't give me what I needed. I had to look. I had to act. Where else am I going to get it? And Saul on paper, he says, well, wasn't this a spiritual thing I did? I was offering sacrifices But Saul did not come to God, God's way. The consequence, ouch. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must come to an end, for the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. And we know this to be David. In this act of disobedience, the consequence was Saul's dynasty will be plucked away from him. He is no longer, His son Jonathan and his grandbabies, they will not be kings in Israel because of what Saul had done here. There's always a consequence for our sin. Those 14 bags of potato chips, they lead to indigestion, right? Infidelity leads to a wrecked home. But the good news is, even though there are consequences for our actions, Jesus came and he paid the price for my sins and I am forgiven, and I am free, and I can have victory over this kind of behavior. Act 2, 1 Samuel 15. I love this. One day, Saul, Samuel says to Saul, he's, Saul's on thin ice at this point. Samuel's had enough of, of Saul's shenanigans, and he goes, it was the Lord who appointed, who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Just so you know, I didn't pick you. It was God. And he says, now listen to the message from the Lord. He's going to spell it out. Read my lips, Saul. You, no boss. God, boss. Listen to boss, numbskull. Right? He's going to spell it out for him. Now listen to what I'm telling you to do. Verse 2. He says, now, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. They had been this bully to Israel as they were trying to enter the promised land. So here he says, I'm going to take some vengeance out on them. He says, now go and completely destroy the entire, in Hebrew, the word entire, it means entire. Now Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. He spells it out. Now listen, this is one of those uncomfortable verses. God is telling him to go kill children and babies. And all I can say to you is that God's ways are higher and beyond us and that he's a loving God. He's a just God. And he knows what's right. And even when it doesn't line up with what maybe I would do and how I'd play it out, I have to let him be God. And so what he says here is he says to wipe out every human. Saul goes even uh, even the little lambs, these precious little lambs. He says, "Yeah, Mary's little lamb, she's got to go." Right? Ba ba ba. That was pre-programmed, and I loved it. Uh, but of course, Saul being Saul, th- does he listen? Does he obey? No. Verse nine or verse eight. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and the goats, the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything in fact that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. So he says all the sick ones, all the lame looking ones, get rid of them. But the good ones, keep them. Keep them. The Lord tells Samuel to go confront Saul and his disobedience. And this is, this is the scene. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. So he tries to play it all good. Samuel, in the meantime, has steam coming out of his ears. Don't the Lord bless you, me. If he, he says, you've carried out my commands. look at I love Samuel's response. Then what is all the bleeding of sheep and coat goats and the lowing of cattle, I hear, Samuel demands. If you obeyed God, then why does it sound like the diamond M ranch here? What are all these cattle and sheep going off? If you were killed, all of them, why can I hear them? To which Saul lamely replies, it's true that the army, see the blame shifting? The army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, but they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. So once again, throws his army under the bus. He's justifying it by saying that we sacrifice the Lord. How could a sacrifice be bad? To which Samuel, and I love this, he goes, stop, shh. Just stop talking for one moment, Saul. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you? Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you, king of Israel. He says, put your big boy pants on. You're in charge here. And listen, the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? He says, you disobeyed, case closed. To which, once again, Saul argues, but I did obey the Lord. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul keeps arguing, I did kill everything. Which apparently, King Agag does not fall under the category of everything. And he goes, oh yeah, and, and the sheep, and, and the goats, and, and the cattle, but we sacrificed them to God. <laughs> Ding! Right? Like it's And here Samuel just throws down the hammer. And he goes, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. He lays three things out for Samuel, Saul here. He says, first of all, obedience is better than sacrifice. And God says this several times in the Old Testament. He says, if you don't come to me with the right heart, then those sacrifices that were supposed to be a pleasing aroma to me are a stench in my nostrils. See, God doesn't want outward ritual. Even if it's religious, he wants a humble heart who knows that God is God and submits to him and obeys him. And then he says, disobedience, he said it's the same thing as witchcraft. Now the word witchcraft here, your translation might say divination. It's seeking spirits other than God for wisdom and direction. And he goes, this is how I equate it to disobedience. I like the way John Piper put it. Divination is seeking to know what to do in a way that ignores the word and the counsel of the Lord. And that is exactly what obedience is based on. God says one thing and we say, I think that I will consult another source of wisdom, namely what? Myself. Disobedience of God's word puts my own wisdom in the place of God's and thus insults God as the only sure and reliable source of wisdom. We say, God, I don't trust you. I don't think that you're wise enough here, so I'm gonna look to my own wisdom. Which is actually, he takes it a step further. He says, not only is it like witchcraft, it is idolatry. And here's why. When God says one thing and we go, eh, I want a second opinion. Me. And then I go beyond that and actually decide that I, Justin, know better than God. Think about what I'm doing for a second there. What I'm telling God is I know that you are the king of the universe, that you have named every star, that you have limitless wisdom, but you know who I'm going to trust instead of you? (laughs) The guy that thinks that's a good fashion choice, Right? Justin, 33 years old, has an elementary education degree, no seminary, keep that a secret just between us, and a struggle with the easy level of the crossword puzzles in the clarion, but I know better than God. That's idolatry, trusting myself instead of him, and worst of all, the idol is me. It's me, as a consequence for Saul. Saul. Samuel says, because you've rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. He already had taken away his dynasty, but he says, now you're not even going to finish out your reign. Someone's going to come and snatch your crown. And it ends on a tragic note, verse 35, the end of 15. He says, Samuel never went to meet Saul again. Their relationship is broken, but he mourned constantly for him. And the Lord was sorry he had ever made Saul the king of Israel. It's a tragic ending that people put their trust in a king instead of God. And Saul did the same thing. He put his trust in himself instead of the king. Two things, and then we'll be done here. Number one, God's time is the right time, and God's way is the right way. Now, I hate waiting. I don't know if you're like me or Spanky here, but I hate waiting. I have no patience. I don't even like waiting for Amazon orders. I'm also too cheap to, to pay for next day air, so rocking a hard place. Um... But a lot of times when I'm, when I'm trying to wait, I I'd rush into things and my own logic tells me oh, this makes sense, right? A lot of times it makes sense. The people of Israel, it made sense. Samuel's sons are a joke. The Philistines are pressing in on us. It makes sense to have a king. But I've gotten into a lot of trouble doing things that made sense because I never waited on God and his timing and his way. See, we've identified here at the church a need for a family pastor. That's why Lewis and and Chung are here to candidate with us this week. And it makes sense. The young couples in our church are procreating as if it's going out of style. (laughs) We've got babies falling out of the ceiling. We've got teens. We've got young children. It is booming. And we've got parents who need direction and counsel in that parenting. I mean, it makes sense. But we don't get to pull in Israel and stamp our feet and say, you give us a family pastor now. And ultimately, and deeper than that, is we do not put our trust in a person, a position, or a pastor, but the God that is the head of our church. But we do love you, Lewis. (laughs) Kings and pastors are not inherently wrong. God, in fact, in Romans 13 says to submit to authority that he's sovereignly ordained. The problem is, is not whether or not we have rulers or pastors or kings. It's a, it's a trust issue. Well, we humble ourselves and seek God in his timing and actively wait on his way, which for the record is better than anything our little pea brains can come up with. Number two, obedience is better than sacrifice. God does not want outward religious action. Listen, he's not looking for super Christian. He's not looking for the guy that says, hey, I'm here every time the doors are open. Saturdays, even Saturdays, I come. Just, I, I, we don't have a service here Saturdays. They, I'm so spiritual, I come when church isn't open, right? Sunday mornings, Wednesday night, I'm a part of, home every, I'm, I'm part of three home groups, right? I'm on the missions team, and I'm on the, the worship team, and the greeting team, and the leaving team, and I'm part of everything. In fact, I know all the worship songs by heart, even the Chris Tomlin versions of the hymns, right? And I tithe, not even my net, I tithe my gross. And all of this outward ritual that God says, if you're not obeying me and submitting to me as God, all of that outward action is a stench in my nostrils. Mark 12, he says, I know it is important to love him with all my heart, all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Jesus is talking to this guy who correctly identifies if, if I don't love God, if I don't love other people, then everything else that I do, I, mean, I can just, might as well keep my sacrifices to myself. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking about what happens when you've got a beef with somebody else and you want to come to the, the temple at that point, we'd say, you know, uh, more of the church in our time. He says, look, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. He says, if you've got something between you and somebody else or you and God, you need to get your heart right with that person and God. Leave that unwritten check. Don't even put it in the offering plate. Go make that thing right before you come to me with your worship. So God wants obedience, not empty sacrifice. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with our sin is that nobody can obey God. Our sin nature doesn't allow for that capacity. We cannot do that the law. We can't do the things that he's required us to do. And this is why Jesus came to the earth. He came and perfectly kept the law. He perfectly obeyed his father in a way that you and I never could. And he died for my disobedience. And so now for me to come to God is not perfectly obeying all of his rules. But to obey God is to fall on Jesus who has perfectly and once and for all paid for my sin, was obedient for me, and now to obey God is to trust his son. Next week, we're going to talk about a man who did have a heart like God's, King David, and what his life looks like, but it's messy too. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you knowing that you don't want empty ritual and sacrifice, and we're going to sing some songs now, but God, I just want to, in my own heart, and for those of us here this morning, Man, if there's something we got to get right with you, we don't want to just be going through the outward ritual and praising you and putting money into the offering plate and kind of doing these things that outwardly can impress other people. God, may we get our hearts right with you. May people in this room today, if they need to acknowledge a sin in their lives and see, man, call it for what it is, a spade a spade, knowing, coming to the cross and finding forgiveness there, but finding victory there, finding hope there, God, we don't want to just do the outward motions. We want to fully surrender and trust Jesus. He's the king of our hearts. He's the king of this church. He's the one that we trust. And as we all have different circumstances, and God, some of these circumstances, like Israel's, they're scary. We don't know when the next rent check is coming in. We we don't know how you're going to provide in, in many different ways. But God, may we take that step of faith and trust you, not the things here on earth. And we believe that you will provide all the things that you promised in your word, that you love us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us, and you will finish what you started in us to make us look like Jesus. May we trust him and not a king. It's in the King Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.